Jesus' name. Will you stand with me, please? Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Chapter 5 and 1 says, It came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house. Verse 2 says, And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. I want to teach you something called the scepter and the sackcloth. If you have a good attitude, you can sit down. Amen. You probably know that there are 66 books in the Bible. It's simple, but it always stuck in my mind, and it was always a great teaching tool. Three letters in the word old. Three letters in the word testament. So 39 books in the Old Testament. Three letters in the book are in the word new. Nine letters again in the word testament. So three times nine is 27. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the new. 66. The longest book in the Bible is the book of Isaiah. And um, they call them major prophets and minor prophets. The minor prophets aren't any less important than the major. It's just basically they're longer. And um, there are 66 books in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is the book that Jesus quoted more than any other. Not unlike one of my misaligned Classmates in Bible college one time said, I only use the King James Bible because that's the one Jesus used. <clears throat> that was the same woman that said, I know that God wants women preachers because the Bible said, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel and men have ugly feet. So it has to be talking about women. Hmm. If you study the book of Isaiah, it may interest you to know that Isaiah is divided into two large categories. The first 39 chapters are almost exclusively devoted to the law of Moses. There is a cancel culture within the evangelical crowd that basically wants nothing to do with the Old Testament. That's absolute rubbish. Near as I can tell, it's still appropriate not to lie, <clears throat> not to take somebody else's stuff, not to covet somebody else's stuff. It's still appropriate to honor your mother and your father, Ashley. Hmm. 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 
the most spoiled woman in the history of the oneness movement. She loves it when I say stuff about her. <laughs> the Bible said all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And all of it, not just the stuff with red letters in it, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. It also says we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Apostles, New Testament, prophets, Old Testament. That's our foundation. Take away the Old Testament and its prophets and you're going to teeter-totter. You're going to have to live in West Virginia where they always said one of our legs was longer than the other because we was always standing on the side of a hill. That's what's going to happen if you take away half of your foundation. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalms 119. It may interest you to know that every verse in the longest chapter in the Bible is about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. On and on and on it goes. It's fallacy to discount the power of the law of the Lord. And when you study the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it interested me that the first 39 are basically about the law of the Lord. But the last 29, or 27 rather, are uh, about God's grace and have a lot of the prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible has nothing to fear from the spade or the trial of the archaeologist. It's not that the Bible verifies what archaeologists and paleontologists have unearthed. It's actually the other way around. The findings of these people continue to discover what's already been recorded in the Word for thousands of years. Archaeology hasn't proven the Bible to be true. The Bible's been true all along. But what has been discovered just simply reaffirms what we already knew. That it is accurate. It is true. And there is empirical, measurable, objective evidence that aligns with what has already been recorded in the Bible. Her name was Hadassah. In Esther chapter 2 and verse 7 it says, And he brought up Hadassah. That is Esther. His uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. It always fascinated me to learn that not one time in the book of Esther is God ever mentioned. Not one time. And yet, you can see that God was working through Esther to save these people. And this makes me think that even though when we don't see signs or evidence of God working in our lives, that doesn't mean he isn't working silently and hidden. God's silence doesn't mean he isn't there. 
and his delay never means denial. This is an amazing story to me because it says that Esther put on her royal apparel, came to the court of the king. Scepter was a powerful thing in those times. The scepter was a a, a baton, a stick that was a symbol of, of the authority of that sovereign. And when that scepter was held out to you, it, it is the equivalent of the welcome of a king. I, I, I was, went to a very small school, McKinleyville, McKinleyville grade school been torn down for many, many, many years, but I still remember finding a book in that very meager library at the McKinleyville School of King Tut. There I was, just a hillbilly kid. I was always digging in the hills. (laughs) I had arrangements with the coal miners And when they'd ever find a good fossil, most of them would know, give it to that goofy kid that lives in McKinleyville. And I had all these shoe boxes full of fossils. Great stuff. Ferns and fish. I came back from going to school and I went to that little room that was mine and my closet was empty. I had three things that I treasured, a stamp collection, a train set, and my shoe boxes full of my fossils. They were all gone. I asked my dad, what happened to the stamps? He said, oh, some guy I worked with said he collected stamps, so I just gave them to him. And I said, well, what about the train set? Ah, one of these guys I worked with didn't have anything, and His kid wanted a train for Christmas, so I gave him the train. And I said, well, what about all of my fossils? He said, them rocks? Them boxes full of them them rocks? He said, I threw all them rocks away. (laughs) I, uh, I was always digging. I remember finding my first petrified tree in a, in a sandstone cliff. And I just dug and dug and dug for several years around that thing, digging out chunks of that beautiful purple stuff. It was magnificent. It was just a rock to Harry. (laughs) So when I found the book about Tut, who I used to call Tutankhamun, found out later it was Tutankhamun. Howard Carter found Tutankhamun in 1927. To this day, it's the greatest find in all of Egyptian lore. It's the only, it it, it had been looted, but not much. It had been looted, they caught him, and then uh, they uh, resealed it. And uh, if you've ever seen any of these pictures of this monarch by the name of Tutankhamun or the abbreviation King Tut. Tut was buried 
in a, in a series of elaborate boxes, kind of like a, uh, one of those Russian Matriani dolls that nested inside of one another. And every one of these caskets was more elaborate than the other, ending with this funeral mass that most people have, are familiar with. It's just that blue stuff, lapis lazuli, and all. it's just fascinating stuff. But one of the, the caskets in Tut's tomb, this is, this is Howard Carter. This is, the, you see the outer casket. Notice the elaborate markings and writings that are on the side of that. I always, this is my mental motto of Joseph. Joseph was the second most powerful ruler in Egypt. And I promise you, he wasn't buried like everybody else. But he probably had some type of casket like this. And on this casket are all of his victories and all of the battles that he had won. So think of Israel for 40 years carrying this elaborate casket of Joseph with all of these testimonies about what God had done with Joseph in his life. One of these caskets, the tomb that Tut was buried in, you see that black stuff. This was an elaborate shawl that was draped over him and... Carter walked out and one of the workers just simply scooped it up and threw it in the trash. And uh, Howard Carter said, well, it's okay. It was the only one in the world, but who's counting? Notice what's inside there. Notice his crossed arms. In his crossed arms are, are two sticks. They're known as the crook and the flail. The one is... There's a lot of debate about this, but the one is probably a shepherd's crook that this sovereign or leader was watching over the people of Egypt as a shepherd watches over his flock. The other is the flail. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, almost a whip. It's got three things dangling on the end of it. It, 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 it was a symbol of of his power to wield against anyone that would invade his country. Always had two of them because they were symbols. There was lower Egypt and there was upper Egypt that was, had a lot to do with the Nile and we don't need to go into all that. But I, I want you to get this image in your mind that these sovereigns held these sticks, these scepters, batons, that were emblems of their authority. Now listen to this verse. This is Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. For a long time, Shiloh to me was just a town in an old spaghetti western. But the Bible interestingly enough, has a lot to say about a place called Shiloh. Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle of Moses was set up permanently after those 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua 18 
describes, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. After traveling for over 40 years, this Old Testament portable church found a home. When Renee and I first went to Okinawa in 1981, I was just a hillbilly kid and uh, I'd never been around the ocean. I, I immediately fell in love with it. I learned to dive in Japan. If you have any doubt about the creative power of the Lord, just go dip your head in an ocean and you're gonna see colors and creations unlike anything. It's known as inner space. It's uh, fascinating what's, what's in. The, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our oceans. Last week, a very, very, very rare fish with a transparent fluorescent head was discovered off the coast of California. They'd never seen anything like it before. I promise you, it's not a one-off. That ocean is full. The Bible said, they that go down to the sea in ships see his wonders in the deep. I pray that prayer every Monday. I don't want to just waste my time splashing around by the beach in the shallows. You got to get out there in the deep if you're going to see something wonderful. When you study the story of Ezekiel's river, ankles, knees, loins, finally you can't touch bottom. So many wonderful analogies there. Basically what it's showing you is the further you go in God, the less of you is going to be seen. And you get to a place where you can't touch, as long as you can touch bottom, you're in control. If you study the Ark of Noah, fascinated me to realize there is one thing Noah's Ark did not have. It didn't have a sail, it didn't have a rudder, it didn't have a steering wheel. That thing was totally at the will and the whim of the current. It's a great picture of you and I in our walk, or I should say our, our treading water with God. Because as long as your feet are touching the bottom, you're in charge. But there is a place, the Bible said, there is a river. And those streams will make you glad if you'll get into them. That you get out there to where you can't touch bottom and you are at the will and the whim of the current of the presence of God. That he can take you where he wants to go. You won't need a rudder. You won't need a sail. You won't need a wheel. He'll take you. Your steps are ordered. Your times are in his hands. Most visited, the third most visited dive destination in the world is the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. The second is Cozumel, Mexico. The third, it surprises many people to learn, the number one dive destination in the world is the Red Sea in Egypt. The Bible calls it badger skins. There was an Old Testament church called the Tabernacle of Moses. It was, it was no, no bolts, no screws, no nails. It talks about sockets and ropes held this thing together. This was the original portable church. It says that on the outside of it were badger skins, but that's not what it says in Hebrew. It says they were manatees. 
It's the aquatic equivalent of the elephant in terms of hardy hides. The skin of a manatee is almost impervious to damage. And it doesn't surprise me to learn that the outside of the tabernacle of Moses was made from the hide of an animal so tough. It had to be. 40 years of packing and unpacking, putting it up, taking it down. Just a lot of wear and tear. But I promise you, even though it was built of such hardy stuff, after 40 years, it was starting to show some age. It was time to settle down. So Joshua set up what had been the portable church of Moses permanently at a place called Shiloh. And I love the next phrase, and the land was subdued. It's an Old Testament picture of Jesus because God, according to John 4, 24, is spirit. God, who had been spirit, was going to take on flesh at Bethlehem. It was Jesus that took, told those shook and shocked disciples, hiding in that locked house, handle me and see. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bone and blood as you see me have. Ladies and gentlemen, there's only one legal liquid that can redeem mankind and can deal with sin, and that's blood. If God would have remained spirit, he would have redeemed no one. But God took an earthly set of duds out of layaway. That's why Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, there's a, a worldwide church that'll tell you You'll never figure it out because it's a mystery, but that's not what the word means. When it says great is the mystery of godliness, the translation is it's wonderful. It's not that you can't wrap your head around it. You're just going to have to accept it by faith. That's not what it's saying. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's wonderful. That's the real Christmas story. That's the real scripture spirit. But to wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. God, who, so to speak, had been moving around as a spirit for years in the Old Testament, just popping up like whack-a-mole from one spot to the next. But I say that with tongue in cheek because where is God going to go? Because there are three words in our vocabulary that wouldn't be there if there wasn't God. And they all begin with the word omni, which means all. Omnipotent, which means all power. Omniscience, or all knowledge. And finally, omnipresent. Not only geographically, but he occupies all three time-space relations concurrently. He is presently in the present and presently in the past and presently in the future. Referred to in the word as the God that was and is and is to come. No wonder he told Moses, just call me the I am because he am the past and he am the present and he am the future. He just am. He is an eternally present Provider, Thus the word calls him El Shaddai, the God who is always more than enough. Yeah. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That God set up camp on earth in flesh at Bethlehem. And so I read you again, Genesis 49. This is, this is the prophecy of Jacob over his 12 boys before he dies. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him or unto Shiloh shall the gathering of the people be. If you know your Bible, there were 12 tribes, but two and a half of them settled on the east side of Jordan. They helped fight in Canaan land, but when the battles were over, they crossed the river and settled on the east side of Jordan because they said this was a great place. The land was fertile, great farms, wonderful families. But if you know your Bible, there were many enemies of Israel. Two are very prominent, Assyria and Egypt. Whenever they would invade Canaan, they always had to come from the east, meaning that they would always have to go through Gad first before they crossed the Jordan and went into promised land. And as I tried to show you last week, Israel would win a victory and then fall back into their old ways and God would raise up a judge or a ruler that would lead them into a great victory. And many of these victories were led by the people of Judah. Watch what Jacob said in prophecy about Gad and Judah. 49 and 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies and thy father's children shall bow down before you. And of course, right after that, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now listen to what he said about Gad in Genesis 49 and 19. Gad, a troop shall overcome you, but he shall be overcome at the last, or the troop will be overcome at the last. Gad, a troop's going to overtake you. But when you bow down to your brother Judah, his hand is going to be on the neck of your enemies. Now, fast forward hundreds of years to Matthew chapter 8 and find what is known as the account of the demoniac of Gadara. Just look at the word. Look at the first three letters. Gad era. This is the land of Gad. This land which years ago was so fertile and such a great place to raise a family is now the home of spirits and swine. What's your name? Legion. I'll tell you another name for a legion, a troop. A troop had overtaken a son of Gad. But when he ran and bowed down to Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus put his hand on the neck and his foot on the head of those enemies because the man had enough sense to run and bow down to the right brother. Years ago, Haile Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia. He claimed he was the descendant of the love child between Solomon and the queen of Sheba. Even to this day, the flag of Ethiopia looks like this. It prominently has a, 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 a lion 
that's displayed upon that multicolored flag. You see, Judah for so many years was the de facto leader of Israel. You see Judah's prominence in the story of Joseph. Joseph had these dreams about planets circling around him and sheaves bowing down to him and the sibling rivalry was, was, was thick in the air. They, they sell their brother. He goes, of course, into Egypt. He's going to be there for over 27 years. Ends up in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife sends him to jail on a trumped up rape charge. He is miraculously delivered. <laughs> they said he was, you know, an overnight sensation, but it was a long night. Because in prison, he met a butler and he met a baker. And they told him the dreams and he interpreted their dreams and told the baker, get your house in order, you're going to be dead. But he told the butler, butler, you're going to be restored to your former position. And it was a, as he's leaving, Joseph tells the butler, don't forget me. Don't forget me. But of course he did. King has this dream. He brings in all of his wise men and he said, I had a dream. I need you to interpret it for me. And they said, okay, what was the dream? And he said, I can't remember. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then I want you to interpret what I dreamed. They said something powerful. They said, only someone who has the gods with them can do that. Just needed to take an S away. It wasn't plural. There was someone that had God with him. The butler goes, I remember a guy in prison. And they clean him up as quick as they could and bring him in front of the sovereign. And Joseph talks about the seven fat cows that came out of the river. And then the seven lean cows and the seven lean cows ate up the seven fat ones. Yep, that's what I dreamed. What's it mean? You're going to have seven years of plenty. And then you're going to have a worldwide famine. And you better get ready right now, sir. Because this famine's going to be the worst the world's ever known. You better find you somebody to oversee this process. And he said, well, who in the world could I find any more brilliant than you? And Joseph is taken out of the prison and basically becomes prime minister. And all of a sudden that famine goes throughout the world. And Jacob tells his boys, fellas, there's nothing left in the crib. Silos are empty. Deep freeze is empty. All the stuff we canned two years ago is gone. But I heard they got corn down in Egypt. They go down to Egypt and there he is. It's a great verse. I've visioned this long haul. AIDS bustling in and out. Putting papers in front of this guy with a page boy haircut and a lot of mascara. Stamping in papers. Next. Number 32, it's like the meat counter down at Randazzo's coming up there. And all of a sudden, these 10 guys come in the back of that hall. And this is what it says. And Joseph remembered the dream. 27 years of being pummeled had basically driven that dream of his youth out. But when those boys walked in, he knew 
Them dudes are going to come out here and bow in front of me just like I saw years ago. Them sheaves of wheat are fixing to bow, and they did. And he said, you're a bunch of spies. And they said, no, 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 sir. We are 12 brothers. 12? Yes. 10 is here. One is at home with daddy and one is not. One is dead. (laughs) Having no idea the one they assumed was dead was sitting right in front of them at that very moment. He gives them their corn and he said, okay, I'm going to give in to you one time. But if you guys ever come back, you better make sure you bring your younger brother. Because if you don't have your younger brother, I'm, I'm going to throw you all in prison. You're lying. Yes, sir. They, they lived on that corn as long as they could until finally it's running out. And daddy says, fellas, you're going to have to make another trip to Egypt. Whereon Reuben said, daddy, uh, I got some good news and bad news. Yeah, there is more corn down in Egypt. But here's the problem. That old dude is never going to even let us in if we don't take young brother with us. We're taking Mo with us. I love it when a Samoy said, little brother, he calls him. Nope, you're not taking him. Joseph's dead. You can't have this one. Daddy, we're going to starve. The old man gives in. And those 11 boys make their way to Egypt. When Joseph saw his younger brother, he couldn't stand it. Runs out of the room crying. He fills their sacks with grain and then he tells one of his servants, take my cup and put it in Benjamin's sack. Now this is very prominent, very important because if you know your Bible, there's a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it says, was the cupbearer of the king. We're not talking some plastic thing you got from Burger King here or that, that thing you get from 7-Eleven says, bring it back and we'll fill it up with a slurp again. This is not, not the way this was. When the queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon, it said that he had ivory, peacocks, and apes. The reason they had peacocks wasn't just because of their amazing spread and their splendor and their feathers. Peacocks were basically guinea pigs on steroids. They're the best watchdogs you could ever have back then. And apes were trained to be bodyguards because they couldn't be bribed. Give it to the cupbearer. He drinks nine, eight, seven, six. Okay, it's all right for me to drink the Diet Coke out of the glass. When it's, they're leaving, they're about out of town and all of a sudden a posse gets around them. Get down off your license and registration, please. They get off of their beast and they go through the bags and when they go through, I love this, it said, and they found Joseph's cup in Benjamin's stuff. I always thought that was cool that the word stuff was in the Bible. When those older brothers saw that cup in their younger brother's bag, it's like, you stupid hillbilly. How dare you swipe the king's cup? I didn't steal anything, fellas. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. They drag them back in front of Joseph. And they know they're in deep, 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 deep trouble. And they're talking in their native tongue. And Reuben says, this is judgment for what we did to Joe. 
We should have never sold our brother. When Joseph heard that, he ran out and cried again. And I see this guy coming back, trying to put his makeup on, make sure he's not looking too disheveled. He drives all of his servants out of the room. And the Bible said, and he revealed himself to his brothers. But the reason he revealed himself is because of this one verse in Genesis 44 and verse 18. And then Judah came near and said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word and let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for you are even as Pharaoh. Up until now, Reuben's been doing the talking, but it's not getting anywhere because Joseph knows who the leader is. Joe, even though Reuben's the oldest, he knows who's running them boys. The same boy that played such a role in him being sold years ago. And the Bible said when Judah, I, I've taught you for years about Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. Every chapter is about Joseph except one. There's one that's out of sync. It's chapter 38. It's the story of Joseph's older brother Judah who has an affair with his widowed daughter-in-law Tamar. I preached to you a little bit about that last Sunday. Judah is, is basically the ringleader. He's what you would call the bell sheep of the flock. And, 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 and Judah breaks out of the silent pack of brothers. And Judah drew near to Joseph. And he said, listen, if you want to keep anybody, you keep me. Please don't do anything with my little brother. Please don't harm my other brother. I'm, I'm, I'm the culprit. I'm the guy. When, when, when self-righteous Judah, Mark Twain one time said, everyone is a moon. They have two faces. They have a face in the light and they have a dark face on the back. This is the dark face of Judah coming to light. This self-righteous man shows himself. And for the first time that we find in the Bible, puts himself on the line and draws near to Joseph and said, I'm begging you, please. My daddy won't be able to handle the loss of his other favored son. You can't do this. And he drives them all out and he stands up and he's wiping some of that mascara off. And he said in their native tongue, it's me, boys. It's Joseph. The Bible said when he said that the joints of their knees were loosed and I reckon so. Because they're convinced we are in deep doo-doo right now. But unlike their, their thoughts, Joseph remembered the dream of them bowing down to him and them circling around him. And the first thing out of his mouth is, 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 is daddy still alive? Is, is daddy still alive? When you read the account of the faces, Ezekiel mentions it. John in Revelation mentions it. The first, they say, was the face of a lion. The second, they say, was the face of an oxen. The third was the face of a man. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. There are many analogies that this, this could teach, but one that's always taught me to me, this is a picture of the four gospels. Because Mark gives the description of Jesus as the servant. There was no greater servant in Israel. Israel is an agricultural community. The, the, the greatest servant the, the greatest farm implement to Israel was an oxen. The mark shows that Jesus served people. Luke, who was not a Jew, but rather a Gentile, 
She gives a total different facet, a different face of Jesus Christ, shows his humanity and, and, and begins his book with a totally different lineage than that of Matthew. John does his book unlike any of the others. John, John is the eagle. John, in the beginning, was the, no, no Bethlehem, none, none of that, no John the Baptist. No, in, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, 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 and we beheld his glory there. John, John is the description of the eagle, this amazing creature that can fly higher and see further than any of the others. But the first face was always the lion, and that's why when you read the book of Matthew, specifically Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Matthew, who is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, said, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He, this, is, this is that verse that says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, that when the great King David's greater son came, he was the embodiment of of the ruling power of Judah because just as a man named Joshua set up the tabernacle in a place called Shiloh, Joshua set up permanent camp in flesh at a place called Bethlehem. And God is not just bouncing and popping up anywhere now, but if you wanna find him, he is in the embodiment of flesh. No man comes to the Father except by me. He's the gate, he's the door. He's the way. And I love this phrase. And unto him shall the gathering together of the people be. That when that Judah, you're going to be in charge until Shiloh comes. And what he was saying is, you're going to be in charge until Messiah shows up. And when he shows up, unto him shall the gathering together of the people be. Is it just by chance that the Bible talks about that, 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 that mercy seat that had cherubs and between the cherubs was where the Shekinah or the showing, would, the, the, the shining, the, 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 he literally would incandesce in, in front of them. Is it, is it, is it just by chance that, that Joseph, who is the greatest picture of the Old Testament of Jesus as far as I'm concerned, said that said the center of the universe was not the sun, but it was me. And all the planets were revolving around me. And all the sheaves were bowing down to me. Ezekiel talks about a wheel in the middle of the wheel. A gyroscope, if you please, that can bring balance to any situation. He's not just the mercy between the cherubs. He was the man in the middle cross, flanked on either side by, 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 by two thieves. John said, I heard a voice. It said, come up hither. A door was opened in heaven. There was one sitting on the throne. And he said, and around the throne was a rainbow. He didn't say above. He said around the throne was a rainbow. An emerald. If you know, remember Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, green, violet. Remember all that? But, but that, that's not what John saw. He saw an emerald green rainbow. But to us a rainbow is just half of an ark which is what he showed them Noah that this is the, my, I do set my bow in the clouds that I'm, that, that I'm not going to destroy the world again by water. It, it was a sign that this storm is over. But ladies and gentlemen, when you get around the throne of the King of Kings, it will not be a half arc. It will be an entire circle. And it's saying this time, the storm is really over for good. 
and around the throne was a rainbow and around the throne were the four and twenty elders and around the throne were the angels and the archangels and the seraphim and around the throne was the redeemed host I'm trying to tell you something he's got to be in the center he's got to be the wheel in the middle of the wheel your life's going to be out of balance if you don't have the gyroscope called Jesus Praise God. Unto him, unto him shall the gathering together of the people be. We're not just showing up by building another temple. It's not just so we can have bragging rights to say we got the biggest apostolic church in the, this is not about it. This is for people that are yet unborn. This is for people that we don't have a face for. People that we don't have a phone number for. People that have legitimate sin issues. We've got to understand, we've got to give them a place where they can be gathered. Hallelujah. 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 Haman, Haman wants to kill all the Jews. This, the, the, the enemy of your soul is always, it's all the way back to, to, to Pharaoh, killing all them kids two years and under, trying to, trying to get Moses. It's, it's all about that King Herod, trying to destroy all them kids, on and on and on. Athaliah, killing all the royal seed. Hitler, trying to kill all the Jews. There's something going on here, ladies and gentlemen. There are sands of the sea and there's stars in the heavens. We are the stars in the heavens, but the Jewish nation are the sands of the sea. They are the earthly witness, amen, of God on this planet. And we have to realize there has been a concentrated effort to destroy them from the beginning because from them is going to come Messiah. From them is going to come the answer and the redemption of the world. Haman just plays his part like so many others. Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, going to destroy the Jews. Mordecai gets wind of the plot, wraps himself in burlap, and gets to the gate of the king's yard. But the Bible is very clear. You're never going to enter into the gate, not the house. You're not even going to get through the gate to get in the yard in front of the door if you're wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth, that itchy, scratchy, nasty stuff that I just wrapped a bunch of bushes in a couple days ago. It's just, I can't imagine wrapping yourself in that. But the Bible said he came to the gate of the king's house. Oh, you got to hear me. You got to hear me. But the king can't hear him all the way outside of the yard at the gate. It's like sitting in the Oval Office with three inch thick bulletproof glass and all them silent people screaming and yelling on CNN. But I promise you, the president can't hear anything that's going on. This king is sequestered inside of that throne room. And you're not going to get any closer. And Esther, knowing, said, you have become for such a time as this. Amen. I know God's not mentioned, but I see God's hand in this story. The puppet master of the universe pulling all these strings. Esther, the Bible said, puts on Chanel 5, 6, 7, and 8. And then she does something amazing. It says she puts on her royal apparel. My wife's got a suit that I bought for her. Amen. For Brittany's, for Brittany's wedding. And, 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 and I've been hearing it now for the last three months. Just 10 more pounds. And I'm going to be able to get in that 
suit that I wore for Brittany's wedding. And it's gonna be a big old day when my sweetie pie shows up in that black suit. And it's gonna happen, and but, 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 but Esther didn't have to lose 10 pounds. She puts on her royal apparel. She drenches herself in cologne, gets a nice fan behind her. The king's doing his work, and all of a sudden he smells something, looks up, and there she is. Amazing, radiant beauty. Wow. And then he does something amazing. He held out his scepter, which is the welcome of the king. She drew near. She touched that scepter. And because of that, he said, what can I do for you? My people are fixing to die. I need you to intervene and interrupt. No problem, sweetheart. Consider it done. My message is long, but it's really very simple. Ladies and gentlemen, sackcloth has nothing in common with the scepter. We are living in a culture and an age where people are just just, just shackled with fear and anxiety and depression and despair. I promise you we're never going to get in front of the king wrapped in sackcloth. The Bible said, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I'll give you beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. Hallelujah. This whole world can be full of fear. Haven't you learned by now these politicians are nothing more but lion thieves. They're just going to keep talking and talking and talking. And aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Our answer is not outside of the sovereign. Our answer is the king that's on the throne. The Lord Almighty, Omnipotent, Reign. He's in charge. Stand with me. Stand with me. And you're not going to get in front of that king boohooing and sobbing and feeling sorry for yourself. You're going to have to put on the right kind of duds. You're going to have to put on the garment of praise. Amen. The Bible said, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall But those are present progressive verbs. It means ask and keep asking. Seek and keep looking. Knock and keep knocking. Why? Because watch, the effectual fervent. But that's not what the, the amplified, the effectual fervent heartfelt, constant, consistent praise and prayer of righteous people matters. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Because once, I'm promising this is what's going to happen. You ask, amen, and keep asking, you'll get the answer to that. But by goodness sakes, don't stop asking with one answer. Don't stop looking with one discovery. Don't stop knocking with one door open. There are lots of doors. There are lots of pairs of righteousness. There are lots of things for us yet to discover. I appeal to you today. Do not let this be a church of sackcloth. Let this be a church that knows how to get in front of the king and have the scepter extended to them and say, I want you to come close. I want you, right now, I'd like you to come close. As a sign of one to get close to the Lord, I'd like you to step out of the, the safety, security cover of that pew and just pry your talons off that bench in front of you. I won't embarrass you. I won't, I, I won't call you out. But for goodness sakes, make an effort today to move. Here's Sister Hebel's mama. Just push your wheelchair just a little bit closer, okay? Just everybody move. Just move a little bit for goodness sakes to say something to the enemy. I'm not staying where I was. I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. God's working in my life because I got a garment of praise on. Look at these duds here. 
No depressing dress here. No despairing outfit here. No drab colors here. This is, I magnify you, Lord. I exalt you above every enemy, every opponent, every foe, every obstacle, anything that would try to exalt themselves to your level or even above. Nobody deserves to share the stage with Jesus. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw Jesus only. So these folks are gonna sing. And while they sing, do what the Bible, don't hang your head, don't be quiet, don't hang your hands. The Bible said lift up your head, lift up your eyes, lift up your voice, lift up your hands. Let's magnify him and let's understand, I want the welcome of the King.